Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. My friends, welcome back. Thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. I'm glad that you keep on coming back week after week to hear me rant about nonsensical stuff that doesn't matter anymore, right? But some reason I'm drawn day after day, minute after minute, into what is the next myth. I did it again though. I started this episode wanting to talk about the Red Island by Cadiz, Spain, and possibly even the mudflats that are there, but I became distracted. Dating the Atlantean War always nags at the back of my head. I started this episode with some light reading of Plato and trying to explain what he means. Then I fell quickly down a rabbit hole. I kept everything so you can hear my thought process as I worked out the mystery of the timeline of the Atlantean War. I can't believe that I have read over the Critias and Timaeus so many times and missed a very important sentence that actually tell us when this war happened. I've bounced around different time frames, such as after the Trojan War with the invasion of the Sea Peoples. I've argued that the war happened as early as 600 BCE. I've held strong on it not being during the Stone Age, and most definitely not a comet nor meteor impact. As soon as I'm done writing this episode, I'm going to go down the Kekropa rabbit hole again, and hopefully I come out sane on the other side. These rabbit holes are dangerous to your mental health. I'm honestly surprised that I haven't been committed yet to treat this unhealthy obsession that I continuously have with Atlantis. This episode focuses on the Critias and the land that is now known as Athens, when they first engaged in war. It is a wild ride, and I hope you like it as much as I enjoyed finally cracking the case of the time of the war. As usual, my sources are linked in my episode description. Last week, I went over in painful detail how Plato was part of the Pythagorean cult. I have argued that the Athenian-Egyptian-Atlantean War happened much later in human history. I often fluctuate between 1250 BCE and 900 BCE as the date of the war, but it has come to my attention that I have been completely wrong. Plato gives us hints as to when this war happened by the words that he uses. For example, here's Plato in the Timaeus talking about the flood of Deucalion, or Deucleon, however it's pronounced. Either or. In the first place, you remember a single deluge only, but there were many previous ones. That sentence is suggesting that Solon only knew of the single flood of Deucalion and Pyra, but Plato continues on. In the next place, you do not know that there formerly dwelt in your land the fairest and noblest race of men which ever lived and that you and your whole city are descended from a small seed of remnant of them which survived. According to legend, after nine days and nights of rain and flood waters, Deucalion and Pyra needed to repopulate the earth. There wasn't anyone left and was told to throw the bones of their mother over their shoulders with their eyes closed. They interpreted it as Gaia, 
as their mother, and the stones as her bones. The stones thrown by Deucalion were the next men, and the stones thrown by Pyra became the next women. Later, they went off on their merry way to make humans in the traditional sense. Anyway, let's continue with Plato. And this was unknown to you, because for many generations, the survivors of that destruction died, leaving no written word. That sentence definitely needs to be examined closer, but this is strongly suggesting that writing had not yet been invented in the parts of Attica. Or, was probably linear script A, or linear script B? Who knows. Let's continue. For there was a time, Solon, before the great deluge of all, when the city, which is now called Athens, was first in war, and in every way the best governed of all cities, is said to have performed the noblest deeds, and to have had the fairest constitution of any which tradition tells under the face of heaven. This sentence suggests that the Atlantean-Egyptian-Athenian War happened before the land of Attica had a city named Athens. So let's continue with Plato. On one occasion, wishing to draw them on to speak of antiquity, they began to tell about the most ancient things in our part of the world, about Pharaonis, who is called the first man. Pharaonis was the son of Anakas and brother of Io. If you missed my episode on Io, I suggest you give it a listen. It's episode 12 and entitled, The Greeks in Egypt Had a Common Ancestor. Anyway, Pharaonis was the primordial king of the Peloponnese, authorized by Zeus. Quote, Formerly Zeus himself had ruled over him, but Hermes created a confusion of human speech, which spoiled Zeus's pleasure in the rule. Pharaonis introduced both the warship of Hera and the use of fire in the forge. Poseidon and Hera had vied for the Argive. When the primeval waters had receded, Pharaonis was, quote, the first to gather people together into a community, for they had up to then been living as scattered and lonesome families. A side note, this flood was the one caused by Poseidon after the Argive chose Hera over him to be the patron goddess. So let's finish Plato's paragraph. On one occasion, wishing to draw them on to speak of antiquity, he began to tell about the most ancient things in our part of the world, about Pharaonis, who was called the first man, and about Niobe, and after the deluge, the survival of Ducleon and Pyra, and he traced the genealogy of their descendants and reckoned up the dates, trying to compute how many years ago the events of which he was speaking happened. First, Niobe was the daughter of Tenelaus, the wife of Amphion, and the sister of Pelops, and Broteus. Niobe bragged that she was the best mother as she actually had 14 children, and Leto, a second-generation titan, only had two. So Leto sent her children, Artemis and Apollo, to kill all of Niobe's kids. Apollo killed the seven boys, and Artemis killed the seven girls. That should teach Niobe from having hubris, right? You never compare yourself to a god. The punishment for hubris is death or fate worse than death. In this case, Niobe being a mother, watching all of her children die, is a fate worse than death. Second, why would Solon try to calculate the years if the priest already told him it was 9,000 years previous? (laughs) 
We have three different flood myths to contend with. We have the flood of Ogis, which is tentatively dated to 1756 to 1706 BCE. Interestingly enough, the great eruption of Thera is commonly accepted to be 1540 BCE. Knowing now that the flood of Ogis was so disruptive that the land of Attica did not have another ruler for 189 years. I do happen to lean strongly towards the flood of Deucalion happening during the Thera eruption. Plato also refers to the people who fought out the war as Hellenes. Helen was the son of Deucalion or Deucalion and Pyra. So which flood is Plato actually referring to? In the Critias, Plato states the following. And what is this ancient famous action, the Athenians, which Critias declared on authority of Solon to not be a mere legend, but an actual fact? Is Plato talking about the Athenians or the Peleskians? Thankfully, we have more to go off of as Plato talks in detail about how the country, which is now called Athens, was situated prior to the Atlantean War. So let's hear it from him. For there was a time before the great deluge of all, when the city, which is now Athens, was first in war, and in every way best governed of all cities. It is said to have performed the noblest deeds, and to have the fairest constitution of any of which tradition tells under the face of the heaven. This I infer because Solon said the priests in their narrative of that war mentioned most of the names which are recorded prior to the time of Theseus, such as Cacropa, Anyrechthias, Anyrechthonias, and Aristicon, and the names of the women in like manner. Ah, so this was a time before Theseus, the great king of Athens, and during the time of Cacropa. This helps us in our hunt. Cacropa had a son named Cranius. Here it is in Apollodorus. When Cacropa died, Cranius came to the throne. He was the son of the soil, and it was in his time that the flood in the age of Deucalion is said to have taken place. Now let's continue with Plato. Moreover, since military pursuits were then common to men and women, the men of those days, in accordance with custom of the time, set up a figure in the image of the goddess in full armor, to be a testimony that all animals which associate together, male as well as female, may, if they please, practice in common the virtue which belongs to them, without the distinction of sex. Is that Athena that they're talking about? So after the battle between Poseidon and Athena over being the patron god of Attica, Poseidon flooded the plain in hot anger. Ah, but Plato actually clarifies this a little bit further with the sentence. For the fact is that a single night of excessive rain washed away the earth and laid bare the rock. At that same time, there were earthquakes and then occurred the extraordinary inundation which was the third before the great destruction of Deucalion. Aha, we cracked the mystery. Perhaps this flood isn't a true flood, but it was just an inundation of water from the sky and the sea. Perhaps this was the tidal wave that Poseidon sent after Cacropa picked Athena over him and, quote, Poseidon in hot anger flooded the Theresian plain and laid Attica under the sea. There's also the snippet from Herodotus, the Athenians, while the Pelagesians ruled, which is now called Hellas, were Pelagesians, bearing the name Crani. When Cacropa was their king, they called themselves Cacropidae, 
sons of Kekropa, and when Erechtheus succeeded to the rule, they changed their name and became Athenians. When, however, Ion, son of Zuthus, was commander of the Athenian army, they were called after him, Ionians. Plato talks about the people of Attica before the war, so let's hear it from him. Now the country was inhabited in those days by various classes of citizens. There were artisans and there were husbandmen, and there was also a warrior class originally set apart by divine men. The warrior class dwelt by themselves and had all things suitable for nurture and education. Neither had any of them anything of their own, but they regarded all that they had as common property nor did they claim to receive of the other citizens anything more than their necessary food, and they practiced all pursuits which we yesterday described as those of our imaginary guardians. I'm not sure who these imaginary guardians are, and I would love to know. So, if you know, let me know. The next paragraph talks about the boundaries of ancient Athens. Plato indicates that ancient Athens was to the east of the Isthmus of Corinth, south of the Catharian Mountains and west of Mount Parnas. Here's Plato. Concerning the country, the Egyptian priest said, was not only probable, but manifestly true, that the boundaries were in those days fixed by the Isthmus, and that the direction of the continent they extended as far as the heights of the Catharian in Parnas. The boundary line came down the direction of the sea, having the direct Oropus of the right and the river Aeopus on the limits on the left. Now Plato exalts the ancient land of Attica. For context, Athens was not known for its fertile lands. In fact, Athens' main claim to fame was the olive tree and the use of olives and the oil for trade. Athens has a rocky soil and is primarily composed of clay. In Homer, it is mentioned that they grew and ate cereal, which could mean wheat. Or barley. Grapes are also known to have grown in the area, but definitely not a vast garden with lots of different choices. Go walk the garden. Hmm, here's a tomato. Oh no, tomatoes didn't come to Europe until after we found America. That's right. So, tra la la. Oh, look, here's a pear. Seed it. It was more just olives, grapes, and cereal. They did a lot more exporting than they did um, anything else of mainly pottery. So that's the reason why we have a ton of Athenian pottery. It's because that was they had a ton of clay, so they learned how to make some really pretty holding materials for their oil. Anyway, here's Plato. The land was the best in the world and was therefore able in those days to support a vast army raised from the surrounding people, even the remnant of Attica which now exists, may compare with any region in the world for the variety and excellence of its fruits and the suitableness of its pastures and to every sort of animal, which proves what I'm saying. But in those days, the country was fair as now and yielded far more abundant produce. The next section goes on to explain the lands of Attica before this flood. I read over this paragraph probably 30 times and the best I can gather is this. Before the flood, Attica's land was well into the Aegean Sea. The small islands that are scattered about were once mountains, and the soil, which is now covered in water, was once very fertile. 
There were roofs of houses that were made of wood that once grew and now covered in floodwaters that were visible for some time after this flood. Here's Plato. How should I establish my words? And what part of it can truly be called a remnant of the land that then was? The whole country is only a long promontory, extending far into the sea, away from the rest of the continent, while the surrounding basin of the sea and everywhere deep in the neighborhood of the shore. Many great deluges have taken place during the 9,000 years, for that is the number of years which have elapsed since the time which I am speaking. And during this time, and through so many changes, there has never been any considerable accumulation of soil coming down from the mountains, as in other places, but the earth has fallen away all around and sunk out of sight. The consequence is that in comparison of what then was, there are remaining only the bones of the wasted body, as they may be called in the case of the small islands. All the richer and softer parts of the soil having fallen away, and the mere skeleton of the land being left. But in the primitive state of this country, its mountains were high hills covered with soil, and the plains, as they had turned by us, of Phileas, were full of rich earth, and I don't know who Phileas is. I tried googling it, there was nothing. And there was an abundance of wood on the mountains. Of this last, the traces still remain, for although some of the mountains not only afford substance to bees, not so very long ago, there were still to be seen roofs of timber cut from the trees growing there, which were a size sufficient to cover the largest houses, and there were many other high trees, cultivated by man, and bearing abundance of food for cattle. Moreover, the land reaped the benefit of the annual rainfall, not as now losing the water which flows off the bare earth into the sea but having an abundant supply and places and receiving it into herself and treasuring it up in the close clay soil, it led off into the hollows of the streams which it absorbed from the heights, providing everywhere abundant fountains and rivers, of which there may still be observed sacred memorials and places where fountains once existed, and this proves the truth of what I'm saying. The next part of Plato's explanation focuses on the Acropolis. He explains that the Acropolis, or the highest point of Athens, extended much further in every direction and was covered with soft, fertile soil. On this wide and fertile high point, there were husbandmen, or men, who attended to cultivated plants and domesticated animals. Here's how Plato explains it. Such was the natural state of the country, which was cultivated, as we may well believe, by true husbandmen, who made husbandry their business, and they were lovers of honor and of a noble nature, and had the soil, the best in the world, and the abundance of water, and in the heaven, above an excellently tempered climate. Now the city in those days was arranged on this wise. In the first place the Acropolis was not as now, but in the primitive times the hill of the Acropolis extended to the Eridanius and the Elysius, and included the Pinex on one side, and the Lycabaetus as the boundary on the opposite side to the Pinex and was all well covered with soil and level at the top except for one in two places. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today?
hero. Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9 p.m. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. Now, it should be noted that the city of Cecropia changed its name to Athens once Erechtheus was in Rome. So Erechtheus was the name of that spring that Poseidon had called forth with his triton when he slammed it down on the Acropolis. Well, he's also a person. Not to make things, you know, this is just ancient Greece. That's how they did everything. We had a personification of a god or a person, and then we had some water element or some mountain or some rock named after them. So Erechtheus is both a king and a river. It's okay. It's okay. So now to really, really put the final nail in the coffin, this is what Plato says in regards to the war.